A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello there, Mark Kenny here. We're bringing you a very special podcast extra, a midweek fry up. The launch of the latest issue of Australian Foreign Affairs Journal, and it looks at Australia's relationship with China. This was recorded live at the Crawford School of Public Policy on Tuesday, the 12th of November, with a great panel, and I'll introduce them shortly. However, a quick note we did have some issues with the sound, mainly at the beginning, so bear with us, it gets better. And here at Democracy Sausage, we certainly reckon it is worth your effort. Alan Gingell is National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs and an Honorary Professor at the Australian National University. He wrote the essay, History Hasn't Ended, in Australian Foreign Affairs No. 7, China Dependence, and is author of the book, Fear of Abandonment. Associate Professor Jane Golly is an economist and director of the Australian Centre on China in the World at the Australian National University. Margaret Simons is a journalist, author, and a board member of Public Interest Journalism... Margaret Simons is a journalist, author and a board member of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative and an associate professor at Monash University. She wrote the essay High Price in Australian Foreign Affairs 7, China Dependence, and is the author of Penny Wong, Passion and Principle. And David Uren was economics editor at The Australian and is the author of Takeover and The Kingdom and the Quarry. He wrote the essay Hostile Takeover in Australian Foreign Affairs 7, China Dependence. And while Hostile Takeover is a solid, even portentous title, I particularly liked the title of another excellent work he co-authored with Lenore Taylor on the global financial crisis and the Rudd government's responses, appropriately titled Shitstorm. So let's hand over to our panel. Professor Gingell, I might begin with you, and I guess it's a kind of scene-setting question here. Um, the editor of Foreign Affairs Journal, uh, Foreign Affairs, the, the, the uh, I suppose the journal, uh, Jonathan Perlman, writes in his foreword that China now accounts for 40% of Australian exports, more than the combined total of the next three countries, Japan, the US and South Korea. No other developed country, he writes, is as reliant on trade with China. You write in your essay, uh, we, Australia, have never had to manage a relationship as important as the one we have with China, with a country so different in language, culture, history and values. Can I ask you to expand on that uh, on that statement and, and sort of give, I guess, the, the, the broad brush uh, scene-setting um, explanation for what we're doing here tonight? Uh, well, thank you. I... I um when uh, Jonathan approached me to uh, to write this essay for Australian uh, Foreign Affairs, um, I, I was happy to agree because I'm one of those people who only know what I think when I write things. And, uh, and it was clear that this was the most complicated and uh, challenging issue facing uh, uh, Australia for the foreseeable future. And uh, so I wanted to be able to sort of uh, uh, think through from the beginning uh, how I thought we should uh, we should uh, manage the relationship. The original title, I, uh, the sort of working title I gave the piece was um, The Strangeness We Feel, which was a line from a KD Lang song, which had just been going round and round in my, in my, in my mind and and... And for me, and that quote that you uh, you gave uh, sort of summarises that this is an extremely unusual uh, relationship uh, for us. Australia's had a foreign policy uh, for 77 years since we ratified the Statute of Westminster in 1942. And for most of that uh, uh, period, there were uh, problems that we had to navigate but the direction of the path we were heading in was always, you know, pretty pretty clear. Uh, it was uh, it was easy, and then uh, around the end of the uh, first uh, decade of, uh, of this century, the world uh, around us uh, changed. We'd been used for forty years 
to a world in which the United States and China had complementary geopolitical and complementary uh, economic uh, issues. And this had been easy for us. Uh, uh, every Australian Prime Minister could uh, chant the mantra that we didn't have to choose between, uh, between anyone. But from you know, that period of the financial crisis um, uh, onwards, one, one big thing uh, shifted, and that was most important to uh, the US and China switched from being status quo powers to being non-status quo powers. Both of them, for different reasons, decided that the world that they were living in, not one which suited, uh, suited uh, their interests, and the story of my essay and the story of the issue as a whole is how Australia is managing that. I was, I was thinking as you were talking that it would be impossible to make a statement like all the way with LBJ or Australia looks to Britain, uh, these kinds of statements that characterised our foreign policy in the past, um, with, uh, with a country like China with, with whom we have so many differences. It's a sort of an easy glib statement to make about a country with whom you share a basic sort of political uh, system, uh, the same language, of course, many, uh, you know, many other similarities as well. So I suppose that does characterize the relationship that we now are forging, that we now have forged with China in a, in a different light. Uh, yes, yes, that's right. The, the, uh, the uh, sort of, uh, systemic, uh, differences that, uh, that we have, these are often sort of, um, uh, shorthanded as values. I think we can get to the values interests. Uh, debate, but I think a lot of, um, uh, a lot of very sort of, uh, flim, clumsy language is used about, uh, both those things, but there's no doubt that we do have, uh, we do have, uh, systemic differences that make it, uh, uh, harder for us to, uh, engage, uh, with, uh, with China. So, so the history, the history is, uh, is, uh, fundamentally different. Professor Golly, if I can bring you in here, um, how, how, what is the scale of the relationship that Australia has, in, in particularly in economic terms, and uh, and how vulnerable are we to fluctuations in um, in the fortunes, for example, of the Chinese economy? It's in the use of time. I'm not going to bombard you with numbers and also because I don't have good ones in my head about just how important the Chinese economy is as a Vulnerability is a more complex question to think about how that dependence could be used by China to influence us or to have power over us. That's really what power is all about. And I think that's the important question that we're grappling with at the moment. And it's really important to distinguish the two. And I'll give an example of that, which is happening right here on campus. Uh, we obviously have very high dependence on, on Chinese students, not just at the ANU, but in most of the, certainly the G08, uh, universities across the country and, and a large number of other ones as well. And as one number, uh, some 80% of the revenue of one of the colleges on this campus comes from Chinese students. It is a very high level of dependency. But you very often hear it, and I think it's a throwaway remark of Beijing could turn off the tap if they wanted to. That's the question of vulnerability. And actually, we don't know that Beijing, meaning the Chinese government, could turn off the tap uh, on Chinese students. Um, it's the sort of research, in fact, I'm working on right at the moment, trying to understand what the channels are through which the Chinese government could stop some number of Chinese students from coming out if they decided they wanted to for some reason. Could they not make it? I mean, I'm not saying they would want to do this. I certainly wouldn't want it to be interpreted that way. But I guess the the um, inference people are drawing from that fear is the possibility they could make it harder for foreign students to leave the country or to leave the country for certain other countries? That's right. So there's a question that remains and, and needs to be answered clearly uh, to understand just how vulnerable we are. And I actually suspect that we're not nearly as vulnerable as we might think, and certainly as that, as that statement reveals, and it comes up time and again, Beijing... And is that because of mutual interest? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Chinese students, and we're up to about 300,000 of them, I think, on, on Australian campuses at the moment or more. It's a very, very high number. Uh, they love coming to study here, and the Chinese government want to encourage that. We've had a soft power push uh, in attracting Chinese students to the country, and, you know, they benefit from that. The Chinese, the government, the Chinese economy benefits from that. They take back skills uh, and knowledge. Of course, there's some contention coming around the edges of that. Uh, but, you know, in the past and until I would say just two years ago, really, everything was viewed in engagement terms, in the symbiosis that we have in collaborating and engaging with China. It's now turned very sharply for a number of complex reasons, but towards uh, the threat and the fear and that understanding, that pivot, and then how we respond to it, I mean, is what Alan's written about, I think, beautifully in the, in the magazine. Thank you. And I think that takes us very neatly, uh, David Uren, to, uh, to your chapter as well, because the other V question along with vulnerability is, is volatility in that relationship. Uh, there is, you've charted it a bit, I think, in your piece where uh, you cite the, the highs and the lows just in recent times of, of the relationship. It wasn't that long ago that uh, very positive things were being said about the Chinese leadership and they, those things are, are, are in some cases uh, unlikely or unthinkable uh, in the current uh, context. Can you talk to that? Yeah, in, indeed. It was, um, it was stunning when I read back. I mean, I, I kind of remembered, as I guess we all do, that Xi Jinping was in Australia and he signed the free trade agreement and he spoke to Parliament House and it was a big thing. But when you actually went back and looked at the language that was used at the time, um, Tony Abbott couldn't have been more effusive. Um, his, he had a line about, um, we trade with people when we need them, but we invest in countries when we, when we invest, when we trust. And he said, you know, I believe that, you know, we have achieved a state of trust, um, between Australia and China. It was just a very, very warm welcome that Australia gave to, um, to Xi Jinping. So this is, um, 2014. Um, impossible to, to think about that now. And indeed, one of the things that struck me was when you look at, um, ASIO's annual reports, they now characterize foreign investment as a threat. They refer to ASIO as helped, um, uh, helped the Foreign Investment Review Board to manage the foreign, the, uh, foreign investment threat. Now, you know, this is language that, that, you know, Australians haven't really regarded, well, for, foreign investment has been considered con a threat by the kind of Pauline Hanson type fringe, but it hasn't been considered a main by the by the Australian mainstream by Australian officialdom as a threat, really going back to the 1960s. So it's been a very very sharp turn. It's been a sharp turn that I I contend has really led by the rise of um, national security intelligence um, services. Um, it's much more being led by them than by, by DFAT, for example. Um, and you can kind of see it politically with the rise of um, Peter Dutton and um, Mark Bazour, the head of Home Affairs, the, the agglomeration of, of services within the Department of, of Home Affairs that now have, a, I think, a very significant influence on the conduct of Australia's foreign policy, um, and to the extent that it involves foreign investment, it's, it's really shaping, um, uh, it's having an influence, I contend, on, on the way Treasury, which is formerly a Treasury responsibility, um, manages things. Yes, it's a different frame of reference, really, for the consideration of applications for uh, acquisitions or other Chinese investment, isn't it, to, to have such a close involvement of the security service. It has a particular mindset, presumably, that is brought to the consideration of that. And many people in this room will remember when uh, Paul Keating um, uh, intervened in this debate not so long ago uh, and described rather colourfully, as is Paul's want, um, uh, said something like the nutters are in charge in terms of uh, you know defining the relationship. And what he was really saying was that it's no longer being de determined by 
um, DFAT officials, as senior foreign affairs officials, and and you know, and others, but but you know, with them in a prime place, and is much more the province of these security agencies who have a much more defensive mindset. I mean, I mean, I think it's interesting that the OECD has done some work specifically looking at, at management of foreign investment, and it's saying that I think nine of the ten largest countries have reviewed their foreign investment guidelines over the past few years um, specifically to um, have a sharper focus on, on national security. So all these countries are all relating to the rise of China. National security is becoming a, an, an issue. It's, it's an issue in Australia. It's an issue in, in the US, Germany, the UK, you know, across the advanced world. But the point that the OECD makes is that Australia has gone further than anyone else. We've been the path breaker in many respects in, in terms of, uh, the, the types of legislation we have introduced, whether it's foreign interference or critical infrastructure to, um, uh, manage, as ASIA would term it, the foreign investment threat. Margaret Simons, you've, um, uh, mapped out some of the, uh, I guess, the significant uh, weight in this trading relationship between Australia and China in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, foreign students, as Jane Golly was saying. Uh, and you've looked at it in your chapter uh, with, uh, I think, a particular um, interest in their perspective, their perspective of Chinese students accessing Australian education. Can you talk to that? Sure. Well, it's our fourth biggest export industry and often spoken of in those terms. But I guess one of the points I'm trying to make in the essay is that uh, digging up coal or iron ore and shipping it out is a comparatively simple business. Educating young people from a different culture and country is anything but a simple business. It's very complicated. And Chinese students are often referred to as, you know, a cash cow. The G8, G8 university is particularly dependent on them and so on. Or, and or as a threat, uh, including to freedom of speech on campus and those sorts of things. Um, but very rarely do we actually look at them as students. And that's what I was trying to do, really. Now, obviously, there are big differences. They come from a different culture. Language problems are just about all pervasive, I think, in the classroom. Um, but in many ways, uh, those things obscure the fact that they're pretty much like any other bunch of students. It very does affect the way you teach, though? You, you, I think you can see that It does affect the point. way you teach. Some, you know, If you go to any university staff room, you'll hear whinges about it affecting the way we teach. Um, but another way of looking at it would be to say maybe it's not affecting the way we teach enough. Maybe we're not actually taking advantage of the richness of the international experience that these students, A, are seeking and seeking, and B, can offer themselves. But because universities have um, escalated the numbers so fast, you'll quite often find classes which are sort of 80 90% Chinese students, particularly in media and communication subjects, in which I've spoken. Um, now, that's disappointing for the Chinese students. They've come to Australia, they spend a lot of money and a lot of time to have an international experience to find themselves sitting alongside their countrymen um, in class. It's like going to Bali. Yeah. But it's... <laughs> and that changes the way you teach in those classes. You know, myself, you know, I put more text on the PowerPoints. Um, I take great care not to use idiom and so on. Um, getting classroom discussions going is harder, so it does change the way you teach in the classroom. But on the other hand, I don't think we really try hard enough to actually give the students the international experience they teach, but also take advantage on behalf of the domestic students of the potential richness of that interaction. We take their money, basically. So you're saying in a way that we, we have significant proportion of the student uh, body in a particular course might be uh, ch Chinese mm. students, but we're we're teaching it sort of defiantly as it used to be taught and making a number of kind of concessions to the, to the barriers yeah. in learning there, but we're not really changing the content. Yeah, by and large. I mean, I'm generalising, of course, and there are exceptions, but by and large, the changes we make are relatively superficial. Um, things like, you know, putting more text on the PowerPoint slides and that sort of thing. Um, and we don't really try hard enough to foster the sort of interactions and classroom debates. And, of course, on the whole freedom of speech issue, the Chinese students I spoke to greatly resent being told 
that they're a threat to freedom of speech when often in a classroom discussion you will find them defending their home country or something, and you'll say, well, isn't that freedom of speech? Aren't you wanting debate, or is it only certain kinds of freedom of speech <laughs> that are welcome here? Um, I mean, many Chinese students move through our education system in a bubble. They access only Chinese language media through WeChat and other social media engines. They socialize, by and large, with other Chinese students. This is a huge disappointment for them in many ways, but it also means they're moving through Australia in that bubble. We don't change them and they don't change us. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you actually uh, you wrote about this in your, in your essay where you talk about uh, there being a sort of a superficial friendliness between uh, Australians and Chinese students, but it rarely extends beyond that. And so that goes um, to your point about the bubble, I guess. Yeah, well, the, some of the Chinese students I interviewed, and I, I hasten to say that I'm generalising, and one of the points of the essay is how much diversity there is in the cohort. But what they'll say is that uh, Australian people are enormously friendly, but that when you actually try to build an intimate relationship, this whole notion which they find slightly puzzling of personal space and privacy come into play. And so they're not invited into Australians' homes or um, um, feel that they can call upon an Australian friend as an intimate friend. And that, that can be really puzzling and difficult and often, of course, they're not here long enough for, to overcome that, and nor do the universities work hard enough at providing the sort of support and cross-cultural training for university teachers that might help us to address those issues. Alan Gingell, I've uh, travelled with uh, Prime Ministers uh, in my previous role as a, as a press gallery journalist on numerous occasions to China and other places, and one of the things that is often said in communiques and press releases during those trips and, and after them uh, really strongly references this idea of people-to-people -people links and how important that is. What Margaret Simons has just been talking about suggests that that's not really... The people-to-people -people links aren't being uh, perhaps uh, uh, exploited to in, in the positive sense to the maximum degree of advantage for either side. Uh, yeah, look, look, I think that's right. It's not just the people-to-people -people links that aren't being exploited uh, effectively. I think there are you know, links all down the all down the chain, <clears throat> but, um, you know, we, we were talking before about the way in which this relationship is different. Australia has had a, <coughs> excuse me, a, um, an important uh, relationship with another Asian country before, of course, in Japan, uh, but the difference in this relationship is that the Australia-Japan relationship didn't, uh, uh, didn't extend into the Australian community in the way that the China relationship uh, uh, does. Although I seem to remember Belky Peterson getting slightly animated about it up on the Gold Coast. Oh, well, well, the, the, the famous multi-function multi policy of painful memory for yes, me. Yes, and the signs, yes. <laughs> and signs. Um, that, that's, that's right. But, that, but, but how small that dimension of the relationship was compared with the, uh, you know, 1.2 million Australians of Chinese heritages, I suppose, rather than heritage, uh, um, uh, here and the way in which we uh, have, to, uh, have to deal with that. So there, there, at, at the people-to-people -people relationship, we are not using effectively the resources in the Australian-Chinese uh, community. There are worrying... There's worrying anecdotal evidence, and you know I've had three or four examples of this myself, of Chinese Australians sort of deselecting uh, out of jobs in the uh, in the sort of uh, national security foreign policy area because they fear that they just there'll be a you know a, a level beyond which they won't be able to uh, uh, to go. So that's. That's one issue, and the, and the other issue is the people-to-people -people relationship within in the uh, in the uh, broader community, where the study of Chinese language is declining uh, um, uh, ev everywhere, uh, and uh, and where there's not nearly enough uh, of the sort of uh, uh, interaction that Margaret absolutely correctly says that we uh, we need in the schools. What about the relationship itself? If we look at uh, going back, Jane, to your point about the you know the, the economic links, which are very strong, 
Um, I can just uh, play a role there. Um, I'm, I'm interested in whether the architecture, if I can put it like that, or the superstructure of the relationship is more important than the cladding on this building, which is to say there's a lot of noise, as we've been discussing, uh, around the relationship at the moment. There are um, people, you know, it's dividing the political parties in ways that it didn't used to, this discussion, and, and creating divisions within political parties. Um, but the structure of the relationship is is very strong. I mean, it's often said, for example, about the US relationship that there's so much to it that it will survive the Trump presidency. Um, is, the, is, is, is it also the case that there's so much substance now to the relationship between our two peoples, and particularly our two economies, that... Um, you know, the current noise is just that. I, th I think it's more than just current noise, and I think it has the capacity to deteriorate further if we don't get the policy settings right and if we don't address some of the issues that we've talked about today. I mean, starting with uh, our monolingualism and inability to properly integrate those 1.2 million or more Chinese Australians into all, all through the system. Uh, how resilient is it? I mean, that's another very important, it's not just an academic question, but it's being played out, and let's just go quickly to the US. There is now bipartisan agreement in Washington, really, that decoupling or this sort of separation of the, the, the of the two great economies of the world, that, that that needs to happen, and that process is happening. Again, in the universities, there are collaborations are being ended, Chinese students aren't being given, given visas, and a decoupling to some extent is happening. It's impossible for that to go all the way to its limit, a complete decoupling, because of just how integrated the global economy is. But that doesn't mean that it can't go a lot further. And this then becomes a really key question for Australia is whether and how much we choose to follow what is unfolding in the US as a decoupling story. Uh, if we 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 can't go as far as they can as they have gone with that because we are more dependent because we are more integrated but that doesn't mean we can't follow them along that route uh, and it's a very i think dangerous route to follow not only for the economy but i think that needs to come back onto the table you know david's um i think the key point from his essay about asio having the decision power it it aligns very neatly with i think a pretty strong public um, perception of there being too much Chinese investment, of us being too dependent. And the response I always make to that, and I say always because I regularly get accosted almost on the street saying, we've got too much Chinese investment, you've got to get rid of it. And I say, well, one, you don't know how much there is, what proportion of the overall investment there is. But also, two, if we don't have Chinese investment, what do you want to replace it, because there's only a couple of options. It's not coming from the United States, and in fact, there's no other country in the world with the surplus capital that China has at this point. And even 15, 20 years down the track, there's no one else who's going to replace them. So if there's no alternative, the, the alternative is, and there are times when we might need to make it, is to say there is a security threat in this case, we will block that investment, then we'll go without the investment, and our jobs and growth will be lower as a consequence. And that might be a decision that we need to make, uh, but each time we make it, we go further down that decoupling route. Uh, we further, I say, infuriate Beijing and possibly elicit a, a response from them that, that we also don't like. Uh, so I guess to answer your question in a nutshell, I don't think we do have the structures all in place to make sure that this doesn't go badly uh, if we don't approach all of the complex issues with a lot more nuance than we've done in the past. Yeah, David, I'm very interested in uh, your, your take on this. I noticed that um, Scott Morrison, when he was in Biarritz for the G7, you know, uh, as, a, as a sort of a, um, a guest attendee, uh, at that conference uh, he told me at one stage something which I thought was a bit, you know, reasonably uh, clever and nuanced position where he talked about, bearing in mind the, the US-China uh, trade war, he talked about... Um, looking to the WTO, WTO, the World Trade Organization, to um, be reformed to reflect the fact that it was written, it was designed at a time, you know, well before China was anything like the economy that it is now and, of course, well before the digital economy came into being as well. And it seemed to me like a fairly good piece of middle power diplomacy. He has 
the US, you know, talking tough, muscling up and, and, and has the resistance from China and, and we see the tit for tat behavior. Um, since then, there's been, you know, he's been to the US himself, Scott Morrison, and the rhetoric was a, a, a bit different. Um, I'm wondering whether that is, that is the path for Australia in this to one play a role as a middle power, middle power. Uh, but particularly one with a lot of skin in this game and a lot of purchase really at the moment in both places. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. And I think it's, it's important not to get too um, pessimistic about the, um, the course that things might pursue. I think it's been interesting in the last week the um, uh, progress in the discussions around the um, regional comprehensive economic partnership, a, a trade agreement that would include, um, uh, in its desired form, would include India, China, Japan, South Korea, the ASEAN nations, Australia and New Zealand, doesn't include the US. Um, if they can pull that off, to have a, um, a trade agreement between um, India and China, a trade, you know, a trade agreement underwriting relations between Japan and China, um, between, uh, in, indeed, between Japan and South Korea, where there are many tensions. If they can pull that off, that's that's a great um, coup for a rules-based trade framework, which is the thing that is so. Um, jeopardized by the, the conflict by the, between, the trade conflict between the US and, um, China and, and this decoupling thesis. So there are, there are things that are moving in another direction. Australia, Simon Birmingham has been a, you know, is proving to be a very effective trade minister. He's, I think, doing a lot to, to try and pull off this, um, this massive regional trade agreement. So there are there are positives. You, we, we, you're right about the confuse, you know, about the mixed messages you get from the prime minister. Yeah, we get a bit more subtle language from both Simon Birmingham and uh, Maurice Payne, the foreign minister, than we do from the prime minister. And it seems almost like there's a bit of a good cop, bad cop routine being played, or perhaps uh, perhaps Morrison's just not as good at it. Well, uh, look, I mean, I think it's, it's in, in, to be fair, to be fair, it's new. You know, Morrison was never that interested in international issues as treasurer, as prime minister. He has to be interested in international issues because they're thrust upon him. I don't know, Alan. What's well, he does a lot of travel for. Some- Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Am I not interested? <laughs> um. Uh, I, I, I think uh, I think the prime minister is grappling with the uh, with the issue. I I think he's done he, he, some of the things he said. I think his AsiaLink speech uh, was a pretty sophisticated effort yes. to uh, to describe what the uh, relationship ought to be like. I think he then sort of veered wildly off beast. With the Lowy uh, um, speech, which I couldn't, which was sort of uh, Trumpist in uh, in uh, um, some of its uh, uh, language, I've never heard the word sovereignty used so much by an Australian uh, prime, prime minister in a speech. But the and, and then there was the speech in in um, in the US, you know, in Ohio, I think it was. Yes, which well, was. Which, but the very That's fact that it was delivered on, delivered, on, on delivered U.S. In, soil, in the, yeah, the, uh, delivered in the uh, in the U.S. The, look, the problem I think is that the, is that they have they have a line on the economy and on China, and they have a line on you know security and the U.S. relationship, and they haven't been able to bring those two things together, and that's the whole challenge. Uh, 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 and, you know, when any Australian government uh, um, 
uh, does that, then then we'll be sort of on the on on the road to working out what to do. But the Morrison government has not yet done that effectively. Margaret, do you think the values question is is the thing that's at the core of that problem? You know, the 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 differences between the two countries, uh, the old was a very fashionable neocon idea not so long ago that we were, you know, Western democracies were constantly needing to sort of, uh, you know, sort of, um, I guess, promulgate those yeah. values around the world. And uh, um, whereas we're getting a bit more nuance now where there's, mm. we get the Prime Minister saying we can have a relationship with China, we don't have to pretend that we're going to have their system and they don't have to pretend, you know, they're going to adopt ours. Yeah, exactly. Now, I think the values question lies at the heart of everything, but by saying that, I don't want to be understood as saying that it is always a barrier. Um, when I say that we should change how we teach in a more fundamental fashion, I'm not suggesting that we just sort of roll over and pretend to be Chinese. I mean, that would be ridiculous and would also undermine the whole reason why Chinese students come here. Um, if I can answer by way of example, I designed a subject which is now taught at University of Melbourne called um, International Traditions of Journalism. And now we get quite a few Chinese students studying journalism in Australia. I suspect they're not a typical cohort because an Australian journalism degree isn't necessarily a huge advantage in China. Um, and of course, not even that good in Australia. What we tend to, what we tend, <laughs> what we tend to teach them is, um, you know, entirely the sort of fairly unreflective fourth estate model of journalism that we all believe in and doubtless have dedicated our careers to. But there is a tradition in China of the Confucian public intellectual, which is part of the roots of their understanding what the job of a journalist is. Now, obviously, that's overlaid with the idea of being the throat and tongue of the party and so on. It's, it's not simple, just as our tradition isn't simple. But if you can actually outline those traditions and other traditions from elsewhere in the world and get them into conversation with each other, that is a fascinating subject. And you don't have to necessarily tell people what to think or abandon your own values in order to gain a greater understanding of each other's point of view. And that subject is a fascinating subject. It's one of the ones in which we actually do get dialogue going on between domestic students and international students and some fierce arguments, but productive arguments, and everybody ends up having their ideas challenged to some degree. That's what education's meant to be about, right? And it's absolutely about values. It's about what values all the students bring to the class and then about critically examining those values and seeing the points of similarity, and there are many, as well as difference. Advocates of the um, the, the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization, you know, that whole debate that was going on and continues to rage, I guess, um, often framed their uh, their arguments as a sort of a counterpoint to the rise of Confucian centres in, in Australian Universities. That was one of the arguments that um, there wasn't a, an adequate defence of um, of Western civilization. Is that something that there is some anxiety about um, in Australia? I probably shouldn't get too political about the Roundy Centre, but talk about the pot calling the kettle black. Really, to be criticising Confucius Institutes for wanting to have control over any kind of the syllabus taught. Uh, about China on an Australian university campus and then insisting that they would come in and determine what would be allowed to be taught on this campus that would reflect the beliefs of the right-wing, you know, and far-right-wing politicians who were, who were setting that up. I think it's really important to note that here at the ANU that our freedom or our statement on academic freedom came into being following the Ramsey incident we could say, because um, it became clear to the Vice-Chancellor that it was time to make a stance for academic freedom as a fundamental value that here at the ANU and I'd say in universities across Australia we will not compromise on. And so for me then that's also a really good illustration of why I don't think we should only be talking about China here and I think Alan makes that point really nicely in his piece. It's my favourite um, paragraph that you wrote, right, Alan, basically saying, you know, why are we talking about the differences between our values and China's? Uh, we could be talking about the difference between ours and Saudi Arabia's. You know, personally I could talk all night about the difference in my values and President Trump's um, and I could go further than that to quite a lot of the Republican heartland across the United States, but I'm not doing that. We're talking about China and Chinese values and the differences. There's a lot of common ground there, and of course the reason why we're talking about 
Chinese values is because China's the up-and-coming superpower and it comes down to economy and size and power and those differences that we need to acknowledge, but let's also think about where the common ground is. Yeah, it's a very good point. One of those, uh, one of the elements to that friction, of course, is the, is what I guess, David, is the perceived change over time of Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping. Uh, he was initially, as, as I think you've charted in your essay, um, re- referred to very, uh, you know, gushingly almost by the Australian Prime Minister of the time, Tony Abbott. Uh, he's since, you know, been come to be seen more as a, you know, an emerging strongman, as an authority, that the authoritarian aspect of his leadership has become more and more, um, obvious, I guess. Um, and so, and, and, and of course that then becomes a vehicle through which other issues are also, uh, examined. So I'm wondering, is that reconcilable? You know, the idea of the, what is he, the president for life and, and these sorts of things? Um, it, it's certainly the case that there has been a, a sharp change in, in the appraisal of him. Uh, again, going back to 2014, I think Abbott uh, even suggested that you know, this was the man who had introduced democracy to China. Well, Is that, that's right, I remember maybe, that. that was, maybe, maybe not exactly. I remember a few of us looking at each other askance at that point saying, did that really just happen? Um, but... but uh, you know, more more substantively, I think Xi Jinping came in. He was clearly a leader of a different caliber to the leaders that we had seen. The more uh, duller, more bureaucratic um, leaders that are, you know, heads of committees that were really the 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 president, the previous presidents. He was a man with with a vision. He came in. There was a big crackdown on corruption. Now. A lot of that crackdown on corruption wound up being locking up people who might be threats, real or potential, to him and to his administration. It was not just simple corruption, though there were certainly many, many people who were caught up. But over time, it's, it has come to be seen as a much more authoritarian government that he that he leads. The 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 whole state of you know, repression in the, the Uyghur uh, people is, is something that causes a great deal of angst um, uh, globally and particularly in Australia amongst you know, Uyghur communities. So there are, there are some genuine issues there, but I, I think it comes back to, well, how do you manage it? You know, you've got to manage it as, a, as, as, as two countries that are going to keep Dealing with each other, and I, I think, as, as Alan points out in in his in the opening of his essay, that you know, whatever the future holds, whether it's bright, dark, or, or or however, China is going to be a massive part of Australia's future. You can't you can't deny it. You've got to deal with it. So you've got to have strategies for how do you deal. And Alan, I know I've kind of asked this in a sense already, but uh, but I'm interested in the context of what David's saying there um, about the potential for Australia to play a positive role here, to perhaps um, to help bring China into the international community in ways that we think is um, is more agreeable to the international community, more consistent with the international community. That issue, for example, about reforming the WTO to reflect China's emergence. Um, if that is framed in terms of respect rather than in response to a threat, that is respect for the return of China to a dominant position in the global economy as it, you know, was for 800 years. Um, is that, is that a, is there a role for diplomacy here, uh, for, for clever, um, and sensitive diplomacy rather than kind of, um, some of the rhetoric that we've seen? I, well, you know, one, one of my fundamental beliefs is that there is always a role for sensitive and clever diplomacy. So, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, there sure is. And, um, uh, and, and look, there's a, there's a good, um, there's a good tradition of this in the Australia China relationship, uh, going right, uh, back to sort of, uh, the work that, uh, uh, Bob Hawke did with, uh, with, uh, Ross Garner, the, uh, engagement that, uh, or even Gough Whitlam, arguably. I, I, sorry, yeah, even for to to Gough Whitlam at the very at the uh, 
at, at the very uh, beginning. So a lot of the, that process of bringing China into the world, the <clears throat> um, uh, um, accession to the WTO, and, and so didn't, did involve detailed um, uh, work by Australians uh, uh, working with their, their Chinese counterparts. So yeah, of course, uh, of course there is. Now China's in a different uh, position from the position it was in in the 1980s. It's uh, bigger and, uh, you know, uh, bulkier and... Uh, and that's a critical difference, going back to your point before, about our relationship with Japan. I mean, Japan was a, a country without a defence force, effectively. That, We're yeah. talking now about a strategic behemoth emerging. Yes, that's, um, that's right. So it, it becomes more difficult in that environment for Australia to... Uh, uh, to in, to engage with uh, with uh, China, but I certainly think that there's uh, there's the potential for doing so. But we can only do that if we're talking to one another. And at the moment, uh, there's a deep freeze that applies right across the board, from you know the prime minister down to the work of the embassy uh, in in Beijing. The reason for that deep freeze is not, I think, that Australian policy has been wrong. Every Australian government this century has said that its policy towards China is framed around uh, we welcome China's uh, 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 rise. It's been good for China, for the region and for Australia, but we want to ensure that the region into which China rises is one in which all voices are heard and in which, um, and, and in which agreed rules are obeyed. Uh, the problem hasn't been in our saying that. The problem has been in the extraordinarily clumsy diplomacy which successive uh, governments have uh, have involved. This sort of, you know, uh, Malcolm Malcolm Turnbull turning a perfectly reasonable Australian position on the protection of the institutions of our democracy into something that was focused entirely on China by by appropriating, you know, Mao's purported, you know, words and saying Australia has stood up. We stand up, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a fascinating um, debate, that one. Is there, is, is there a sense, um, take anyone's position on this, is there a sense in which uh, our, our domestic discourse on this question is a problem in diplomacy? I mean, we, we, we had the, the case of um, uh, the West Australian backbencher, whose name momentarily escapes me, um, speaking recently, talk, you know, raising the, uh, he wrote an op-ed where he talked about, uh, you know, similarities with, um, what was happening in Europe in the 1930s. Um, did, did you want to take that? Feel free. Uh, I'm just, I'm just interested in whether that, that is a, a problem for an Australian government, uh, because Effectively, you have a one-party state responding to what happens within a multi-party democracy, which is, you know has a robust internal discourse. Yeah, no, I think that the um, the debate is really impoverished, and it's understandable. People are frightened. The, the rise of a new power is frightening, particularly one that isn't obeying many of the rules or doesn't seem to be obeying many of the rules that we've been accustomed with. The South China Sea, and that was Andrew Hastie's point, wasn't yeah, it? That, that's that, right. that it was a real changer or a exactly. rule breaker. But, you know, we, too easily, even on universities where we should know better, we lapse into talking about the Chinese people as though they were monolithic, as though there was no diversity, as though there was no complexity of view in China. And of course there is. You know, you only have to sit down. I've, I've been to China five or six times. You only have to travel through China. You only have to talk to Chinese people, academics, ordinary people on the street to realize that there is enormous complexity and diversity. Um, and if our debate could begin to engage with that, if we could be a little bit more literate, then I think we would all be much better off, and indeed the diplomacy would become easier because we wouldn't be hearing such a sort of crass and unnuanced public debate. Yeah, it's an interesting point. It occurs to me that, uh, that you know, uh, America could learn a bit from China. I mean, Trump wants to build a wall. The Chinese have had one for thousands of years. <laughs> Could, could, Alan, I, could I just uh, throw one sort of dead cat on the table? Because there are three, um, uh, there, there, are, there are three people with a journalistic uh, background. It's not simply the diplomacy of the Australian government that's been at uh, at fault here. Uh, I think the performance of the Australian media has been very inadequate <coughs> in um, 
<coughs> in in addressing uh, these uh, these uh, these issues, we can go in, into it later. But uh, but I think there's a uh, there's I'll take uh, it outside. Is that what you say? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't disagree. I um, I think the Australian media have raised many legitimate issues and concerns, but it tends to be a one note song. Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be raising those legitimate issues and concerns, but there are other other aspects of the relationship which are almost completely um, absent from the media. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good point. Did you want to make take, take mine? So I just I feel quite strongly about this view on not to be too critical of the journalist sitting next to me, uh, who I know write very balanced material. But the fear campaign that really gets propagated, I think, you know, there's this. There's this uncertainty in government of what to do that sometimes is blundered out in really inappropriate ways and then the media latches on to the fear which sells newspapers and the headlines like China circling PNG that you see in the Australian especially, um, people grab onto and then you start to read underneath the story which is about, in this case, the PNG government uh, going to Beijing and asking for help with loans uh, and realise that there's a very different story under the under the headlines. Uh, then we hear that the Lowy poll has, you know, revealed that the Australian public has become more concerned about China this year. It's like, well, I wonder where they got that from. You know, there's a really circular argument there that propagates fear and leads us down a path that I think uh, we will regret if we end up going down it. I see a particularly eager journalist on your left. I mean, I think, yes, there's been some extraordinarily unhelpful um, Four Corners programs, amongst others, um, but, you know, media, certainly. There's also been some extraordinarily unhelpful comments from individual politicians. Um, I noted, I thought, quite a reasonable piece um, in this morning's Australian by Dennis Richardson where he was saying, look, we've got to take the China relationship piece by piece, deal with each piece separately, And but he, he made a big thing about stop stop random tongues flapping in a in a thoroughly unconstructive way. I think that's 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 correct. But I think the core point comes down to leadership and that's what's missing. I think that it's the media and the you know the the random backbenchers don't really matter. It, it, they really don't matter at all. I think it's the um, it, it wouldn't matter if you had leadership articulating a strong position that was being executed by the government. And I think you know, if you contrast going back to um, um, the Hawke and, and Keating governments where if they took, if they wanted to take the nation in a direction, if they wanted to do something, they argued it and, and presented the case and advocated very, very forcefully. I think Howard government did that also. I mean, not probably not on... Not distinctively in, in foreign policy, but um, oh, go back further on foreign policy. The Fraser government would have done. I'm Alan. This is your 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 ballywick, but I think that it's it's leadership is is what what really counts. And I think because the leaders don't really know what to do, and because there are the, these divisive voices, um, they're all over the shop. Well, I think you're right there, but they don't know what to do, which makes it hard to pretty much communicate any sort of message to the Australian populace. Now, we're going to take some questions if we can. We have a little bit of time. Um, not very much, to be honest, because we've, um, I've allowed it to drift on. I'm sorry, but, uh, we have a couple. There's one here. Um, just on the back of the last, um, topic of discussion, which is media, I'm wondering if you'll, make a difference if the Australian media was more diverse, for example, hiring more Chinese Australian people, not just in English language media, but also in Chinese language media as well. Um, I mean, I'm a public servant, so I know about the important diversity in public service, but I think media will also be um, important. Yeah, I'll, I'll comment on that. I mean, one of the great rewards of teaching Chinese students journalism is that some of them, a minority, but a significant minority, actually do stay on in Australia, and I have three or four former students now working in Australian media. Um, sometimes their position is very difficult. One in particular I'm thinking of has been assisting Australian journalists with Mandarin translations and so on. She never gets a byline because she is concerned about the impact 
when she returns home and also on her family back home, particularly when she's involved in journalism, which is critical of China. Um, but yes, absolutely, and it's a broader point than only the Chinese community. Australian journalism is still overwhelmingly white and middle class. Um, until very recently, it was white, middle class, male. Um, it is beginning to change. If you look at the uh, graduates and if you look at the intake in newsrooms, it is changing, but uh, it's it's been too long. It's taken too long, and we need to do more and, and do it more actively. And one of the few things which I would congratulate Michelle Guthrie for during her time as leader of the ABC is that she made achieving such diversity a very high priority. And um, I think she was absolutely right to do that. Uh, one just here, yeah. Hi. Um, if we can my, keep this fairly brief because we're running yes. out of time. Um, my question's primarily for Margaret, but if anyone would like to comment, they can. Um, Margaret, in your essay you mentioned that one of the primary reasons that a lot of Chinese students find Australian universities so attractive is because they um, uh, do so well in the rankings. Um, and it's not the only reason, obviously. But if, but you also mentioned that you, Chinese universities are becoming are raising up the rankings, which would lower the... Uh, incentive to come to Australian universities. With that in mind, do you think that Australian universities should preempt this and introduce policy to, and preempt this in a way to reduce the impact of uh, slow in Chinese students coming to Australia, or would that be jumping the gun unnecessarily? No, I think um, it would be really good to know what our top universities are doing around risk management, because I agree that it's very unlikely the tap's going to be simply switched off you know, short of a war, which, of course, we all hope doesn't happen. Um, but I think it's almost inevitable that the numbers will decline. They can't possibly keep growing at the rate that they have been. Um, and I couldn't get any clear answers from any of the universities about what they're doing around managing that risk and near inevitability that the numbers will at least level off. Um, so, yes, I absolutely think that there should be some discussion about that, yeah. Let's take this question up here. I'm trying to get some sort of spatial equality. I can't do anything else. Uh, the discussion is largely focused on um, various shortcomings in, shortcomings in the way that Australia has handled its relations with China and focused on various ways in which we could do a better job. Uh, and that's all great. I totally agree. Um, you could almost think that there is no issue of covert influence in Australia um, from that discussion. So my question is, uh, do you think that those problems of covert influence, are they a problem and how do you think we should handle those? I'm going to unilaterally hand this to Alan. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, look, I, I don't... Um, uh, I obviously don't have any, you know... Like I don't see any of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, of the evidence... A lot of people who I know and trust, though, uh, do, and uh, and say there there are there uh, ha have been uh, uh, problems. I mean, for a long time, China has been concerned about the traditional groups that were opposed to uh, the you know Tibetan uh, uh, Tibetan groups and Falun Gong and so on. But it does seem to be expanding more. Widely, my only uh, point in this is to say that this is entirely an issue for us. It's an important issue for us. We must ensure that uh, that our legislation, that the resources of our security and uh, police agencies are such that uh, that uh, you know you know we are uh, we are protecting. Uh, 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 the Australian uh, uh, public. So I've got, I've got, uh, you know, that that seems to me to be a no-brainer. Yes, of, yes, of course. Uh, we we are opposed to foreign interference in Australia, just as China uh, is opposed to foreign interference in in its own affairs. Both of us uh, ascribe to that, and and we should ensure that so we do. I might just add that I have actually had personal experience and I think there is evidence that uh, there's interference happening in a range of different ways. Uh, I don't think it's as, as extensive as is played out in the media, but there are certainly issues and 
to wrap up into the last question as well, the university is thinking about risk, uh, this university and all of the universities and about how to deal with um, a range of forms of interference that, again, aren't only about the Chinese, but they're certainly big players. I have, we've learnt recently that the CIA rather likes to have um, people through, through our campuses. The Institute of Public Affairs apparently has informants who come and check on who's saying what, and I don't think they're going to like what we've said today. But if I hadn't said that and had just spent the time uh, getting the knife into China and there's lots of stuff that we could, you know, we would have had a very different conversation. We really needed two hours for that. It is happening to some extent and I think we've got a really good opportunity to finish on a positive note of getting the house in order and it's happening on campuses uh, and I think it can happen at the, at the government level as well. We'll take one more question, provided it is quick. Uh, wherever you, I'll allow you, Yulia, to decide. Hi. Well, my question is related. If we look back now in this time, it mentioned that Jinping Xi is the president since about six years. He has dealt already with six prime ministers in Australia. He will deal with another six or ten maybe during his term or his presidency for life. So do we need, my question is, do we need to compromise on issue like human rights, uh, South China uh, Sea issue with the rise of the Chinese uh, policy there, trying to impose things by military force because of the commercial interest. Who wants to take that? <laughs> I'm happy to take it. <laughs> uh, I think the answer is that it is a multi-layered relationship and there are many things that are happening within it and I think that's really been the message today um, of, of all of us, I think that um, there are some things about uh, the way China does things that Australians will have difficulties with. The question is, how do you prioritise them? How do you manage all of the the sort of multiple multiple factors in a relationship? How do you what do you place priority on? Clearly, some people would like to say the human rights record of China is such that it ought to be the defining feature of our relationship. Uh, others will say it's, it, you know, it's clearly the economic relationship and we should be raising these things but we shouldn't be campaigning on them and we've got to consider why we campaign on them as well. There's the issue of whether you say things publicly or whether you, as has been the, the tradition of Australian Prime Ministers in the past, whether you take those matters up in one-on-one -on -one in private discussions, whether that is the best way. Uh, all of those things, I guess, need to be managed and and uh, and considered. I, I would say, just on your question about uh, on your point about um, six prime ministers, it's true they must be. No, no. Well, it's six if you can't run twice. Um, <laughs> and in fair, fairness, he did have it twice, uh, albeit fairly briefly the second time round. But um, uh, it, it's certainly true that we've had a lot of instability, and instability is not uh, a feature of the Chinese system. For reasons that we could, uh, yes. Um, Mark referred earlier to um, the book that I co-wrote with um, uh, Lenore Taylor, um, Shitstorm, which was about the management of the financial crisis. Kevin Rudd launched that um, for us at Parliament House, but he was an hour late to the launch because he'd been deeply engrossed in a discussion in Mandarin in his office with Xi Jinping, who'd been who was this was before he was he was. Um, um, president, but it was after he'd been, um, you know, it was, it was clear that this was his, this was his next gig. Anyway, so, so Kevin Rudd comes along an hour late to the, the launch, launches the book and goes off and two days, two days later he's no longer prime minister. Um, <laughs> Xi Jinping has had this very long, extensive discussion with, with the Australian prime minister. He hops on the plane and thinks, well, what was that all about? And just on route on the way back, I think, Another point looking into the future is that Xi Jinping, like everyone else in the room, is not going to live forever. Now, I'm not wishing ill of him nor of President Trump, but history doesn't end today. And what we see happening in China today, and again on the human rights, there's been a tightening up, there's been a deterioration as we look on. Uh, that doesn't mean 
the only way is down for for China, uh, and it also doesn't mean that disengaging is the way to to solve that problem. You know, the, this this idea that we don't like something that's happening in China, and therefore we do what we pull back from them. I don't think that's necessarily the solution. But I think the big point is history doesn't end today. Uh, there's a long path ahead, and anything can happen both in on both sides of of the world. On that note, uh, and, uh, you know, who, who, the revelation that Kevin Rudd was late to a meeting is hardly, <laughs> hardly one that surprises me. Uh, and your appropriately named book, uh, probably described, uh, you know, the, uh, the furore when he left as well. Um, thank you all for coming here tonight. Can I thank Margaret Simons, Alan Ginju, Jane Golly, and David Uren for their, uh, perspicacious comments? And, uh, would you join me in thanking the panel? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.